Yeshua heals a deaf man. Rabbi Jerry, why don't you start us off? Picking up in verse 31, Yeshua left Tyre and went to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Yeshua to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Yeshua led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears. Then, spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, "If a th- I got should have translated that one out from the Greek, but it means uh, be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Yeshua told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and give speech to those who cannot speak. So, Rabbi Lauren, why did Yeshua take the man away from the crowd? Shouldn't people always come up to the front very dramatically in front of everybody and have hands laid on them to be healed? Good question, Rabbi Jerry. So sometimes um, Messiah did heal someone in front of the public, in front of the crowd. He did that frequently. Sometimes he did not want to do, do that. And he chose to take the person aside for more privacy, uh, just that person and Yeshua. So this is one of those instances where Yeshua does not want to do this in front of the crowd, takes the man aside uh, to heal him. Um, Here at Shema, uh, we do pray for people to be healed. People will ask us to anoint them with oil, and we will anoint them with oil. We usually don't do it in front of everyone. We usually take them aside privately. It's more discreet. Uh, They're dealing with maybe other issues. Uh, We lay hands on them. Uh, We pray for them. So that's what's happening here as well. Yeah, not, you know, what I find interesting about this is, you know, faith healers say, so-called faith healers, I really should say most of these people, um, you know, the Benny Hins of the world and all these people, it's always very dramatic. They always want you to come up. It's, it's a spectacle. It's a show. Um, with Messiah Yeshua, everything he does is very deliberate. It's not a spectacle. It's not a show. It's about the person he's interacting with and what they really need and also being aware of the surrounding audience. He's very deliberate in everything he does. So it's interesting that he put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spits on his fingers and touches the man's tongue. That's not usually how most doctors treat you today. Uh, If they did, we would probably be a little concerned. So why does Yeshua do this, Rabbi? (laughs) I think this is an accommodation to this man to... Um, help him have more faith. It's something tangible. Uh, it's touching. It's body to body. You know, I think it was, um, was it Elijah or Elisha who laid on the body of the dead child, that kind of physical contact. Uh, we talked about touch holiness last week. I think Yeshua is um, doing this physical thing 
to inspire and build up the faith of this man that he is about to heal. I agree. I think it's symbolic. I think this is, I was doing some research on this this week, and this this was normative for this time period. Uh, This is how he would have been expected to, in some ways, sometimes be healed. Um, And so Yeshua, I think, is just, this is building up his faith. It's symbolic. So why does he look up to heaven, though, when he does it, Rabbi? Okay, so... um... When I was a brand new uh, believer, you know, I would go to church. I went to uh, Moody Bible Institute. And before uh, we prayed, um, the man in charge would usually say, uh, bow your heads, close your eyes, let's pray. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that was, um, you know, what Christians normally uh, did and should uh, have done. But um Yeshua's practice was not to bow his head, close his eyes, and pray almost all the time. He looks to heaven with his eyes open, looking to God, focusing on God, and praying. So, We see the same thing with the feeding of the 5,000. He uh, looks up towards heaven. So why was the crowd amazed? Because this was a great miracle. It was really something very special that a man who is deaf and can't speak is instantaneously, miraculously, suddenly, wholly, completely healed. That was powerful. That was unusual. That stunned the crowd. That this man who had, you know, couldn't speak properly and was deaf suddenly is speaking and hearing everything. That wowed them, and rightfully so. Was the crowd right to spread the news about Yeshua after he told them not to? We see this happen over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. Yeshua performs an amazing miracle. He says to stay quiet about it, and then they just can't keep their mouth shut. Again, he's not performing for crowds. He doesn't want, you know, notoriety. He wants it private between him and the individual. He's not, you know, the Benny Hinn types that, you know, it's all on film and, you know, replayed. No. Uh, The exact opposite. You know, discretion, individual, you know, individual uh, care. And by this time, The young rabbi from Nazareth is so popular throughout all of Israel and beyond the borders of Israel that he can't go to a a city or a town without being overwhelmed by people, and it's starting to interfere with his ministry. So he asks the crowd, you know, not to say anything. Of course, they disobey the one who just did this great miracle, you know, one who was obviously sent from God. So the crowd disobeys Rabbi Yeshua. But I've got a question for you, Rabbi Jerry. What's worse, the crowd who spread the news after Yeshua told them not to spread the news or us not spreading the good news after Yeshua has commanded us to spread the good news? What's, what's worse? Well, I would say not spreading the good news because, you know, this, this probably caused Yeshua some irritation. You know, he had larger crowds following, following him. But this also led to more people being saved, believing in the good news. 
Whereas when we refuse to share the good news, you know, it's like withholding the greatest present you can give somebody, right? The present of eternal life given by grace. And I think that's a lot worse than causing a little bit of service. So we have a reference here to, alluded to basically in this, to Isaiah 35. A lot of people see this passage in Mark connected to Isaiah 35, particularly where it says, your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Rabbi Lauren, what do you see as the connection between Isaiah 35 here in this passage? If you're familiar with the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, when you see this fantastic miracle of a man who's deaf and unable to speak properly, suddenly uh, hearing and speaking, if you're at all familiar with uh, the Tanakh, you can't help but think about this passage uh, this is like one of the signs that God is among us. He is starting to restore a destroyed creation. He's starting to heal wounded humanity. And I think that's exactly what we should understand is happening with Yeshua uh, throughout his ministry, but especially special miracles like this one. Uh, humanity is like this man. We are unable to hear well. We are deaf. We are unable to hear our Creator speaking to us. And we are unable to speak well. We should be speaking about the great God of heaven. We should be speaking about His glorious power and works and His great saving ability. We don't speak well. Yeshua is the one, the only one, who can heal humanity, help us hear from God, and then help us to speak the way we should speak. Absolutely. You know, I when I think about this passage, you know, it reminds me that it just shows how desperately we need Yeshua. You know, um, you, you can get by without seeing, without hearing, but it's a very difficult life. You know, I think of our uh, even not speaking as well, or right? I think of Helen Keller uh, as an example of that, right? Um, but it's much better to be able to do these things. You have a higher quality of life, and that's what happens when Yeshua enters your life. The quality of your life increases dramatically. But it's interesting to me that this entire passage, right, the beginning of it talks about the 10 towns. This is a, you know, Gentile country. There's Jewish people here, but these crowds would have been predominantly Gentile, still continuing from the previous passage with the Gentile woman. And so what's interesting is these Gentiles, once again, just like the woman, you know, they're saying again and again, everything he does is amazing. They're astounded. They're having real, genuine faith in the Lord. And when you connect this back to Isaiah 35, I think this is important, right? When you read that contextually, Isaiah 35, you think, oh, well, this is just the Jewish Messiah coming for the Jewish people. And it's true. But there's an even greater fulfillment happening here because these promises in Isaiah 35 aren't just for Jewish people or the righteous Jewish people, which is how a lot of people would have read this, but it's for the entire world. You know, it's not just Jewish eyes that are being opened, but Gentile eyes as well. 
well said. Mark 8, Yeshua feeds 4,000. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Yeshua called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way. For some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, How are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Yeshua asked, How much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Yeshua took all the people to sit down. So Yeshua told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too. So Yeshua also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, and Yeshua sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. Like Yeshua, thank God for the food before they ate. That is something that all of us should practice before every meal. You thank God for your food before you eat. If you're in a place where you can do it out loud, that's better. Sometimes that might be awkward, but you do it then quietly, silently. Notice the food came from? Yeshua, to the disciples, and from the disciples to the crowd. And this is a lesson for us. This is to be us. We need to be close to Yeshua, each one of us, like the disciples were. They were closest to him. They, we need to be aware of Yeshua, alive to Yeshua, constantly thinking about Yeshua, we need to be holy and on fire for the Lord. Then Yeshua will give us bread from heaven. He'll give us spiritual food, spiritual nourishment, which we in turn will be able to give to spiritually hungry humanity. Right? 4,000 men were fed by Yeshua from seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And more was left over than Yeshua began with. That's pretty amazing. This teaches us that Yeshua is the bread of life. He is the one chosen by God to feed starving humanity. And humanity is starving. For a lot of humanity, they're physically Hungry every day, something like a billion people will go to sleep tonight hungry. 
But it's not just that we're spiritually, uh, you know, physically hungry. <laughs> Even worse, we are spiritually hungry, spiritually malnourished. Yeshua is the one chosen by God to nourish starving humanity. And eventually when he returns, he will amply supply all the physical needs of the entire world. Only Yeshua, not Muhammad, not Buddha, <laughs> not science, not technology, Yeshua. Rabbi Jerry? Just a quick thought here. You know, there's a theme we're going to see running through these passages today uh, of spiritual blindness and deafness. Um, we see the, the Gentile woman previously, but now also the Gentile crowds seem to really understand. But the Jewish people, you would expect to understand, we're going to see, really don't. The disciples are wondering how they're going to feed these people. They have literally experienced this same miracle before. <laughs> not, even, not even like a similar miracle, but literally the same miracle. Literally bread, literally fish, literally this whole process again. The only thing different is the group of people they're feeding this time. Um, and we're going to actually see this come up again later. They're, you know, they are like that man. They are spiritually deaf and spiritually blind. They don't hear, they're not understanding, they're not seeing. Um, and it's a serious, serious problem. And if this can happen to the disciples, it means we can't rest on our laurels and believe it can't happen to us. These were the guys who were literally traveling with Yeshua, seeing all this stuff. So most of us claim to be Yeshua's disciples. Are we hearing from God the way we should be hearing from God every day? Are you hearing from God? Are we seeing the way we should be seeing our eyes spiritually open? We continue on uh, with verse 11, where the Pharisees demand a miraculous sign. When the Pharisees heard that Yeshua had arrived, 4,000 people probably told him about it, they came and started to argue with them. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. He was done with that. So it's easy when we examine this story to think that a miraculous sign from heaven is just the Pharisees demanding another miracle. But we have seen Yeshua perform miracles, and he will continue to, right? We just saw him perform the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. So when he says this generation will not be given a sign, this has to be something more than just another miraculous uh, feeding or healing. Previously, we have seen Gentiles devotedly following, believing, and even beginning to understand who Yeshua is. These Pharisees, in contrast, antagonistically test Yeshua, asking for more than just a miracle. It's very clear in the Greek in this text that this is not just a polite, uh, hey, Yeshua, we really like you. Would you just give us a little sign, please? No, this is antagonistic. 
They're hostile to Yeshua. They want a miraculous sign. And the word for sign here is different than the usual word we read as a miracle. And what it really has to do with is an amazing display of power like God did through Moses. They want some amazing supernatural sign to confirm Yeshua's authority. But this is really just a game. It's, it's a power play. And Yeshua refuses to play their games. And so he sighs deeply. He's you know, deeply distressed at their continued unbelief. Using the same phrase, I tell you the truth, that he used to teach them about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, back, I believe, in Mark chapter 3, he identifies them as this generation. Uh, now, that could be a good thing, but contextually here, it isn't. Because this generation is like that generation of Noah, the generation with Moses in the wilderness. Those were not good generations. And what unites them is their continued disbelief in the Lord, uh, particularly with the signs and wonders that the Lord performed. So like those generations, this is a serious warning that they need to change their thinking and actions towards the Son of God. And then he basically drops the mic and walks away. <laughs> He gets into the boat, he says this, he basically has a prophet, and then he leaves. A lot of people think, if I only experienced a miracle, that's all I would need to believe, to become a believer. But that is almost never the case. Yeshua had been doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, small miracles, medium-sized miracles, fantastic miracles, feeding 4,000 men with, you know, some loaves of bread and fish, um, healing people, casting out demons, and the religious leaders in Jerusalem knew all this. They didn't need another miracle. There was plenty of evidence all around them confirming the authenticity of Yeshua and his ministry and that God had sent him into this world as a miracle-working prophet and the Messiah. Um, and you know what? Even though Yeshua is not here, we are surrounded by so many evidences for God's reality uh, for the truth of the Bible, the reality of the Word of God, people who come to us and say, oh, you know, if I, I, I need a miracle. No, they are already surrounded by incredible evidence, the design in nature, uh, the, the growth of Messiah's community for the past 2,000 years, the way this one uh, Jewish carpenter turned rabbi transformed human history, the way things are lining up once again uh, towards his return. Um, if they would just read the Bible and seek, you know, seek and you shall find, knock and the door would be open. It's not for lack of evidence, that's what I'm saying. It's not for lack of information. People don't have the desire, uh, the willingness to look at the evidence that is already abundantly there. 
and I think I think it also goes to, particularly with the Pharisees, you know, it really goes to Yeshua is challenging their view of Judaism, of how they are to live, and he's challenging their power. And they're upset by that. They're comfortable in the religious trappings that they have, not all of which are bad. The Pharisees did a lot of great things. They cared for people. They, they did lots of wonderful things. But when they were confronted with their own hypocrisy, which we've seen previously in Mark, they get hostile. Um, people want you, you know, we want people to affirm us. We want, uh, you know, we could, we could fill this, this um, place with a lot more people if we changed our preaching style here at Shema and just said nice things to people, we only talk about the love of God, the love of Yeshua, affirm you in whatever you're doing. You're just, you're great just the way you are. You don't need to change in any way, shape, or form. It'd be very popular. I know it's very popular because there's a guy who does that quite a bit, Joel Olstein, and he's pretty popular. And he makes a lot of money. But the reality is, is that's not what scripture says. <laughs> And that's not what Yeshua taught. And so we have to be willing to change our hearts and minds when confronted by the truth of God as well. We continue on. Verse 14 with our last uh, passage for this morning. The yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And this really brings together a lot of these previous passages we've been looking at. Uh, So we continue on. So this is after he gets into the boat, right, and leaves. And we read, but the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. One loaf of bread is not enough to feed all these people. As they were crossing the lake, Yeshua warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. So he's giving them a teaching like, oh, thanks for reminding us, Yeshua. Yeah, we need food. Who's going to have some of this bread? Yeshua knew what they were saying. (laughs) So he said, why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? This doesn't seem like a really nice thing Yeshua is telling them. I thought Messiah Yeshua was always sweet and kind and gentle. But what does he say? He says, when I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet, he asked them. So it may seem odd to see Yeshua linking Herod and the Pharisees together. They really don't have a lot in common. But they were in many ways opposites. They were rivals in power to each other. You know, it's like today saying like, you know, liberals and conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, like people who are very, you know, ideologically opposed. But they do have one commonality, Herod and the Pharisees. They were in positions of power and influence. They could spread what was true And they could also spread what was false. Both Herod and the Pharisees refused to believe in Yeshua. And they also had influence over many others. It was a danger that Yeshua is identifying here. The disciples do not hear. They do not see. They do not understand. 
They are so worried about their earthly conditions that they are like those Pharisees and Herod who refuse to believe in Messiah Yeshua. You know, they're in this boat with him physically, right? But spiritually, the disciples are very far away from him. He reminds them of the literal miracles that they have seen twice, where he fed thousands with a little bit of food, right? Do they not understand that he could do the same for them as well? You know, they see this, okay, they, they didn't get it the first time. They didn't get it the second time. You would think at this point, they would get it, that if they're running out of food, Yeshua could make food for them. And yet they still don't believe. And he reminds them, you literally carried how many baskets? You know, it's like a child, you know, it's like talking to a child here, right? It's like, how many baskets did we have? We had 12. And how many baskets did we have the second time? We had seven. And he's, okay. And they're just looking at him. And he's like, okay, right? You know, don't you still understand? You know, don't you understand yet what I'm doing here? And yet, What's, what's powerful to me in this passage as, you know, you can almost, you know, feel Yeshua pulling his hair out at them a little bit. But he still loves them. They're still his disciples. And they will get it eventually. Because we know the rest of the story, right? They get it eventually. But yet, in his, you know, even though Yeshua expects this from them, he still has deep compassion. But the real warning here for them, and I think this is the key thing here, is it's not just about Herod and the Pharisees, but these disciples in this moment are closer to them than they're probably comfortable with thinking. Because just like Herod and the Pharisees, they're in a sense denying who Yeshua is with their lack of belief. Now, they're not hostile like the Pharisees, right? They're in the boat with him. But they, you know, even though they're following him and identifying with him, in their hearts, they still don't really believe because they still don't really trust in him because they're still afraid about a little thing like not having enough food. Rabbi? Um, Rebbitz and Alexandra talks about this, the scary Jesus. <laughs> He's not always the sweet, loving, kind <laughs> Messiah. Sometimes he can be very tough and very scary. And this is when he's being tough with his disciples, the scary Yeshua. I like that. Yeast, you know, Passover's coming up, right? This week. One of the things that is essential to Passover is getting rid of yeast from your homes, not eating bread, you know, made with yeast. Why? Yeast, uh, you know... We left Egypt so, so quickly, there wasn't time for our bread, you know, to become fully leavened and puffed up, so we remember that. But also, yeast is a symbol of sin, and that's exactly what Yeshua is using it for here. Beware of the yeast, the sin of the Pharisees, and the yeast, the sin of Herod. And um, yes, of course, it's lack of faith, which was common to those two, as Rabbi Jerry pointed out. I think the yeast of the Pharisees is the abuse, misuse of spiritual power, religious power. 
There are people that really want religious power, spiritual power. It's seductive. If you do have spiritual power, it's got to be constantly yielded to God the Father, God the Son, for it to be beneficial. Uh, the yeast of Herod is political power. A lot of people want political power. Very seductive. Uh, I know some people who are uh, Christians who are very involved in the political process, and uh, it's it's like they throw so much time and energy and money into this chasing of political power that they have very little left uh, for the kingdom of God. So it's another danger, another seduction. Uh, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And that applies to us as well. Are we like the disciples who are in the boat with Yeshua, so close to him, but really are not fully realizing who he is and not trusting him as the Messiah, the son of the living God? We don't, be, we don't want to be like the disciples uh, in this incident. One last comment. You know, the Pharisees had a lot of knowledge of Scripture. They were well-read in the Torah, in the Tanakh, in the teachings of the rabbis. They could probably quote passages very easily. They understood biblical references. The disciples mostly blue-collar, but they're being taught literally by the <laughs> Son of God. Okay? Both of these people, they're, and they're Jewish, so they have knowledge of who God is intellectually. They've grown up around it. They've seen it. They've experienced the temple. And yet they don't believe, you know, some more than others. The Gentiles we see Yeshua encounter in these passages, you know, they're, they're not welcomed into the temple. They're not welcomed by most Jews. They didn't grow up with this stuff. And yet they know enough that they can recognize something amazing happening and what they do that's different is they not only listen, but they obey. They allow their hearts to be changed. They allow their lives to be transformed. They submit themselves to Yeshua. That is the sign of real transformation, of real faith. Are you a real believer, real disciple? Is are you willing to submit your life to Yeshua? It's more than just a doctrinal statement or being able to argue successfully about Trinitarian issues or salvation issues or other littler issues less severe than that. It's about a genuine change in your heart, in your life being transformed by Yeshua. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry.